0: The Murdoch family name was synonymous with money, power, and law and order in South Carolina Lowcountry. Paul Murdoch, the youngest son of attorney Richard Alexander Murdoch, had a reputation for using his family's clout to consistently avoid the consequences of his own actions. But when Paul Murdoch crashed his father's boat in February 2019 in an accident that claimed the life of 19-year-old Mallory Beach, Paul's luck ran out. The Beaches family's subsequent pursuit of justice for their daughter would be the catalyst that ultimately led to the downfall of the Murdoch Empire. I'm Marina, with me I have my best friend Laura, and this is Grimm. Did you hear me hanging on to that sentence for dear life? <laughs> yes. The Beach's family's subsequent pursuit. It does sound like you are very rich when you're saying it, though, when you say it that way. Subsequent pursuit of justice. <laughs> the pronunciation. That was a great intro, though. Thank you. You have me interested. It's very interesting. <laughs> I had several people ask me to cover this yes. case since it's been all over the news. Mm-hmm. Um, for this case, I watched the Murdoch murders, a Southern scandal on Netflix, which is it was very well done. I also listened to a lot of the trial testimony and the Dateline special called Dark Waters. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Before we start, I wanna give a big old Patreon shout-out to our yay. newest Patreon gremlins. First up, we have Crystaline H. Woo! Ooh, Crystal, we, we love you! We love you and Danny. Danny! We love you, Danny! We love you, (laughs) Danny! Our love for our gremlins is absolutely free, but if you'd like to buy us a glass of wine or a cup of coffee, you want your own shout-out, or you want some extra bonus episodes or pee bonies, check out our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com and search grim colon a true crime podcast. You could also request if you don't like the shout-out. Like, you can still join and then request that we don't (laughs) shout-out. Because I always thought, like, what if somebody didn't want it? What if they hate it? What if it's their least favorite part of the episode? I don't know. Maybe it is. I mean, the feedback we get is that people it really jazzes them up for the day. I mean, it would jazz me up. Yeah, like I I do a shout out to myself and listen to that every day. This is a shout out to my ex. <laughs> Anyways, anyway, so this case is interesting. <laughs> There's like seven Ooh, G's. I was gonna say every letter there. Huh? There's a lot of G's. Good oh boy. Go, go. There are several cases within this case, and I have so many things to tell oh. you. Yeah, this is a blood and feathers roller coaster ride for sure. Wait, let me get my hair flowing. This is one of those cases I got really excited while I was writing my notes, and I kept trying to drag people into conversations about it when I heard new information. My husband was like, stop talking to me about it. I don't care. That's fair. Well, you couldn't talk to me about it yet because you no, we were waiting for this, and I, I've been I burying my head in the sand. <laughs> Literally, you were out of the country. Yes, that's true. Yes. <laughs> so I want to start by giving you a good background on the Murdoch family because the family as a whole is so important to so mm. many facets of what we're going to be talking about. Those who have seen the Murdoch name spelled, it looks like Murdaw, but everyone pronounces it Murdoch, mm. unless they're saying Murdog. But mm. I'm, but like I don't like that, so I'm he's gonna go with Murdoch. Dog. No, no, he's not, he's not Murdog. We're but gonna go being with said, Murdoch. The Murdoch murders. <clears throat> it would be kind of cool. Murdoch murders. But Mur- Mur- Murdoch murders is still okay, I guess. I'm gonna go with Murdoch mayhem. I think oh. Murdoch mayhem. Okay. Hmm. That's good. So we're going to start in the 1900s. So you must be extra excited. Oh boy. The Murdoch family were legal royalty in South Carolina and their name was synonymous with law and order. From 1920 to 2006, a member of the Murdoch family served as the solicitor for the 14th circuit, which is an elected prosecutorial position that leads the prosecutions in five counties in Southern Carolina, which was known as Murdoch country. Wow. And just for those of us not around the legal circuit does, is that meaning like the district attorneys or or whatever attorneys that are trying people, they, this, he oversaw them. Yes. Prosecuting state cases. So we don't have like district attorneys in Connecticut. We have state's attorneys, but yes, the lead attorneys overseeing all the other prosecutors. So he had a lot of power, kind of a big deal, influence, kind of a big deal. And their legal empire began with Randolph Murdoch senior, After graduating from law school at the University of South Carolina, Randolph Sr. opened up his own firm in Hampton, South Carolina in 1910. The story goes that Randolph and his family were so well known for their legal practice, they never even put a sign up. People just knew who they were and where to go. Wow. Randolph Sr. practiced civil law with the firm, but in 1920, he became the first Murdoch elected as solicitor, a job he would hold for almost two decades. In 1938, Randolph Jr.'s son, Randolph, a.k.a. Buster (laughs) Murdoch Jr., graduated law school and joined the family firm. When Randolph Sr. died two years later in 1940, Randolph Jr. was elected and took over as solicitor and served for 46 years until he retired in 1986, the longest term of any U.S. solicitor in history. He probably would have served longer if he could, but he had to retire because no one could be solicitor past the age of 72. Wow. Wow. Randolph Jr.'s son, Randolph Murdoch III, you might, you might be sensing a (laughs) pattern. Just a little. Yes. It's a a family tradition. Oh, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) He joined the firm back in 1964 and then was elected as solicitor in 1987. Are we using the word solicitor because it's, I know that it, at least I thought that it was synonymous with lawyer in the UK, but is it like, does it mean something specific in the United States? Not in the United in this district. The solicitor is the oh. head prosecutor. Like that's his title. Fascinating. He's okay. the solicitor, oh. sort of like if you are the state's attorney for New okay. Haven, like okay. you are the head state's I attorney. See. But there are other state's attorneys. There's deputy Got assistant it. state's attorneys, senior state's attorneys, supervisory huh. state's attorneys. I'm just fascinated that they specifically call it solicitor. Which again, I understand where the word comes from. But right, gosh, I'm listening and learning. <laughs> so much to learn. My favorite. <laughs> so uh, the Randolph the served until 2006. Six, but the Murdoch family's reign in the solicitor's office ended with him. In 2006, a non-Murdoch was appointed solicitor, and I know what happened. Randolph Murdoch III named his son Richard Alexander. Got kicked out of the family. Ugh. That's it. <laughs> had Richard Alexander been named Randolph Murdoch IV, he would have had a different legacy. Seriously? Right? Yeah. I'm just kidding. There are other reasons I'll get into <laughs> later. Richard Alexander Murdoch is more infamously known at this point as Alec or Alec Murdoch. Again, I don't know uh, what is with like them changing the Mm. rules of pronunciation for the (laughs) English language. The Alec might be a um, accent thing. I'm not sure. Maybe if you say it fast (laughs) enough, no one will know which one you're saying. (laughs) Alec, maybe that's what's happening. Maybe I'm going to go with Alec. Regardless, although he wasn't the solicitor elected to replace his father, he did follow in his family's legal footsteps. After graduating from the University of South Carolina in 1990, he went to the school's school of law, earning his Juris Doctorate in 1994. Alec went to work for the family firm that had become known as Peters, Murdoch, Parker, Eltsroth, and Detrick, uh, which is P-M-P-E-D, and I kept thinking, I'm a motherfucking P-I-M-P. <laughs> I was just wondering how the other guys got in there. <laughs> I, I'm just... Maybe they were associates that worked their way up to partner. Maybe all their first names were was it Robert? No, Richard, well, Rich, Richard, and right. Randolph, right. Randolph <laughs> right. and Richard. Randolph was the one I was thinking. Randolph. So maybe all of their first names were Randolph. Maybe were, you know that's they how just they were and Father did. Yeah. <laughs> in addition to working at the firm, Alec also volunteered as an assistant solicitor in order to spend more time with his father. But Alec was primarily a successful plaintiffs attorney, helping his firm bring in millions of dollars in legal fees. Alec was well-regarded in the legal community and was even the president of the Trial Lawyers Association. It seems as though his position as an assistant solicitor wasn't a big time commitment since he only tried about five cases over two decades with that title. But despite the lack of prosecutorial work, Alec still took his volunteer position very seriously. Seriously enough to carry around his solicitor badge and get blue lights installed in his firm vehicle. I'm sure that had nothing to do with traffic Mm -hmm. conveniences. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, the local sheriffs told them that he could do it. So, I mean, why wouldn't he? That's fair. Yeah, the family was connected. And the yeah. badge, I mean, I get it. Like we all know that a badge carries weight and the prosecutors in Connecticut get badges too. I'm sure they put that right on their dashboard if they ever get pulled over, you know? So I get it. I don't get the blue lights though. I don't yeah. know if that's like a North versus South yeah. thing, but I don't I don't get it. <laughs> Alec met his wife, Margaret Kennedy Brenstetter. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. AKA Maggie during his time at the University of South Carolina and the two were college sweethearts. Maggie had attended high school in Pennsylvania, but her father's company relocated him to a job in South Carolina, so Maggie enrolled at the local university in 1987. She graduated in 1991, and her and Alec were married on August 14, 1993. Their first son, Richard Alexander Murdoch Jr., (laughs) starting a new tradition, (laughs) whom they called Buster was born in 1996 and their second son Paul Terry Murdoch was born three years later in 1999. Yeah I guess you can't name them both Richard. <laughs> no you don't normally see second that kid, right? The second kid though. Well you could though couldn't he be Richard Alexander the third? I actually don't know if the second and third imply just of the family or of a generation. Oh. I don't know. I feel like maybe it's of a of a family I don't know I can't think I, I don't think I've ever seen that with like two siblings having no, the same. that'd be pretty funny though if you kind <laughs> of tried come in here well you would call you'd have like buster and dick yeah <laughs> <laughs> buster dick. Dick, Bu- dick buster get in here buster dick <laughs> no. I barely know her <laughs> so funny this is my favorite joke always and forever oh man funny Maggie wanted a big family, but she was incredibly sick during both of her pregnancies. So they decided to just cherish their two boys and called it quits after Mm -hmm. having them. Maggie was an outsider in Hampton, not having grown up there her whole life like Alec, but she was friendly enough. She was described as friendly but stuck up, basically. <laughs> they were like, you know, she was super nice and but she adjusted quickly to the money and power that oh. came with the Murdoch name and I, thought she was better than everybody else. I feel like I would too. I'm yeah. just kidding. So she's like a she's like a friendly, bless her heart, yes. nose up in the air kind of yeah. person. Yeah. The Murdochs lived a very comfortable life, if you can imagine, (laughs) and owned several homes. Mm. But what must have been the boys' favorite was their home in the outskirts of Hampton, South Carolina, on Moselle Road, known as Moselle Farm. Moselle Farm is an over 1,700-acre farm, and it has all of the amenities a Southern boy could dream of. 1,700 acres? Mm Mm-hmm that's so many acres. <laughs> See, I'm glad that you said that because you are from a place where there's land and normally you and Colby are like, "Oh, well that's nothing" because no, no, I no. grew up. Yeah. That's a lot of acres. I think Colby was on like 28 or something like that and that was a lot and like I I bet your neighborhood isn't even <laughs> 1700 acres. It that's a lot of acres. I have no perception of distance and size and plot size and I only know acreage. That's it. Like if you gave me driving directions in acreage, I would be okay. But when they're like 500 feet, turn left, I'm like, okay, next turn, I guess. And when someone's like, you go north and I'm like, okay, who do I look like, Sacagawea? Like, no, (laughs) tell me, tell me if I'm headed towards the McDonald's or the Chick-fil-A. That's all I got. (laughs) Uh, So, Moselle Farm had all the amenities. It had two miles of river for fishing and kayaking and hunting amenities, including dog kennels, a skinning shed, and turkey and deer for on-site hunting in the woods surrounding the property. There was also a custom-built home on the property and a landing strip and hangar. Does that help you understand how many 1700 acres it's is. a lot it's a lot but i think a lot of it was probably was in the woods too are you using google maps i i was gonna google how many football fields in an acre but then i would have to do uh-huh. the math so i, I wasn't going to tell you yet because that's going to take me a second <laughs> okay i did check and it is about an acre is about a football field so 1700 football fields which is a lot that is a lot of well if you're interested it was recently listed for sale at 3.9 million dollars that's it up here it would be way more I mean, there were some murders on the property. (laughs) I was very invested in the property and completely forgot we were doing an entire episode. It has a history, right? It has a history, right? Oh, including the the um, landing strip and hangar was probably from the prior owner who was suspected of being a drug smuggler. Oh, so that would that would be convenient to have your own. I literally wrote that's convenient. (laughs) Super convenient to have your own landing strip. So now now that we can imagine the size. We can move on. It's huge. (laughs) Huge. It's huge. The biggest property. The biggest. The biggest and best property. So both of the boys were clearly loved by their parents, but Paul felt that Buster was the favorite. Mm-hmm. Paul felt that his mother favored Buster throughout their life, and that Buster solidified his place as the golden Murdoch son when he decided to go to law school to follow in his father's footsteps. Mm -hmm. I mean, he kind of had it set up for him, having the family name. He did. Well, it it changed from Randolph to Richard. Well, still. But but he has his dad's name. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Paul wanted nothing to do with that life, which, bless his heart, Mm -hmm. I would have counseled him the same. (laughs) (laughs) He felt like he was a disappointment to his family, and as a result buster was the one to get his mother's love and attention or so he felt hmm. paul filled the maternal void in his life with the love of gloria satterfield the murdoch family's housekeeper who basically raised paul hmm. this is like a movie like you would write a script of a movie this is made for tv wow this story yeah this is like when you watch a movie and it's like love sex drugs, scandal <laughs> like that's that's wow. this movie wow. except it's real fucking life awful Paul loved Gloria like a mother and even had a picture of her in his wallet. Gloria Satterfield had been working for the Murdoch family since around 1998, so two decades. Mm. She was a second mother to Paul, but she also had two sons of her own, Tony Satterfield and Brian Harriet. When she wasn't working for the Murdoch family, she spent her downtime with her family. Once in high school, Paul found another woman to love. He began dating Morgan Dowdy in her junior year of high school. Morgan's family was incredibly down to earth. They were originally from Long Island, which is very much not the South for anyone who doesn't (laughs) know. Morgan's dad worked as a landscaper and her mother was a nurse in a prison. So blue collar. Yeah. Very different from the Murdochs and the families didn't spend much time together. It could have gone either way, though, depending on where they were from in Long Island. Very true. Very true. The Murdochs lived the life of Riley, and Morgan became part of that life when she hooked up with Paul. As Paul's girlfriend, Morgan got to go on expensive trips with the Murdochs, including to the Kentucky Derby, the Final Four, and deep sea fishing for Marlin in Guatemala. Okay. Yeah. Some perks. Along with the fun came the drinking. Morgan said the drinking culture was prevalent in the Murdoch family, and Paul Murdoch was a drinker from a young age. Hampton County had a yearly watermelon festival and Alec would offer handles of alcohol to the law firm partners, teenagers during the festivities. Oh my. And if you drink, don't (laughs) drive, do the watermelon crawl. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of listeners that would have been disappointed if I hadn't done that. Let me just say it. I fully believe you. This party atmosphere all sounds fun, but unfortunately, like Eileen Wernos, alcohol changed Paul for the worse. Oh no. His friend said Paul had an alter ego that they named Timmy because he was a completely different person when he drank. And they said that you could tell that Paul was basically morphing into Timmy because he started to do this weird thing with his hands and fingers and like flail his arms around. So basically Paul's version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was him turning into the wacky waving inflatable arms <laughs> tube man called Timmy. <laughs> I'm really sad though. Cause I was like really rooting for Paul through this first descriptor. No, but no. Okay. No. Nope. Nope. no. Nope. So alcohol made him a dick, but you know, his friends still hung out with him. Yeah. Cause he was fun, I guess. Yeah. Paul would also get physical when he drank oh, no. and he and Morgan had an on again, off again relationship because of it. Mm. Morgan said that Paul would kick and punch her when he was drunk and even described an incident where Paul grabbed her by the throat one night after Buster's graduation party while they were staying overnight together at a hotel. Uh uh-uh, uh. Uh uh. I heard somewhere that like you're not gonna do anything drinking that you wouldn't that you're that you how do I phrase it, that you wouldn't want to do like it, yeah, just that it releases lowers, yeah. your inhibitions, yes. but or lowers your inhibitions. Yes, but that you still like. I'm not. I'm not going to do that because that's not something in my body to ever do. Right. So it must be something that he's prone to doing, and it's just released when he's drinking, which makes me not like him anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Keep it. Keep that going. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Following a fight, Morgan would break it off with Paul, and then Paul would apologize and beg for her forgiveness. She always took him back. Mm. Paul may have been the black sheep of the friend group and his family, but he was still a Murdoch. Whenever Paul got in trouble, he'd call his grandfather Randolph. Randolph would call Alec, and then the two lawyers went to work cleaning up whatever mess Paul had made. Poof, trouble all gone. Uh huh. Which I'm sure really discouraged him from doing it again. Oh, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure he always learned from his mistakes. Uh-huh. One thing I'll say though is that um, a lot of people so a lot of these families grew up together Mm -hmm. like their whole lives. So like the parents of these kids who are now hanging out together, like grew up together. So people knew Alec when he was a kid. Mm -hmm. And one of the moms was like, if you were in trouble, you went to them too. Interesting. Like, so they got themselves out of trouble and they got other people out Mm -hmm. of trouble. Like they were just, they were the family to know and to be. It's like their own compound almost right amongst all these families. It's crazy. Well, because they ran the state's office yeah, for true. so many years. they have connections in law enforcement. I mean, like oh. they just they run the town Ugh, which is the foreshadowing of of why this is so bad is really a lot of problems. yeah, yeah. a lot of problems. So as a great example of one of these situations where Randolph and Alex stepped in, Morgan said in December 2017, after Paul had been drinking at a Christmas party, he was driving him and Morgan home and he lost control of his truck driving around a curve. The truck tipped sideways and it, beer cans and guns were thrown all over the interior of the vehicle, which is just chaos. Why Why the guns? What? You're in the south, okay, okay, and he's a hunter. Okay. You just have okay, gun- okay, You just have okay, guns right. in your truck yeah, all the time. Yeah, goes well with beer. Yeah, <laughs> Paul and Morgan weren't badly injured, but they had crashed. So Morgan pulled out her phone and began calling nine one one. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Paul grabbed her phone and threw it as far as he could. He then immediately called Randolph, and Randolph showed up right away with Alec and Maggie. The three worked quickly and started cleaning out the guns and beer cans, and one of the Murdochs asked Morgan why she would have tried calling 911 because she could have gotten Paul in trouble. Oh, my God. Moral of the story, protect the family at all costs. I can tell. Gloria Satterfield told Morgan that she knew how Paul was, and she had to love him how he was or walk away. That's probably good advice, actually. Yep, but Gloria wasn't around to see Morgan finally stand up for herself. no. no. On the morning of February 2nd, 2018, Gloria was walking up the brick steps to the Murdoch family home, McDonald's cup in one hand, purse on the other arm, just like she had done hundreds, maybe thousands of times before. But something happened and Gloria fell backwards, (gasps) hitting her head. No. Maggie found her that morning, bleeding and mumbling on the brick steps. Maggie called 911 and told the operator that her housekeeper had fallen and an ambulance arrived to take her away. She was unresponsive at the hospital, suffering from multiple rib fractures and a subdural hematoma. Uh, rib fractures? She I fell guess, okay, back on okay. the steps. Oh, So I think oh, oh, the step, okay. if you yeah, fell yeah, hard yeah, enough. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Alec told the police after the accident that while Gloria was still on the steps and they were waiting for the ambulance, that Gloria had been conscious enough to tell him that his dogs had tripped her while she was walking up the steps. Strangely enough, those who had been there that morning confirmed that Alec wasn't. Mm. Regardless, Gloria's siblings surrounded her in her final days, but she never truly regained consciousness and she died from her injuries on February 26, 2018. I wonder what the liability difference between your dogs tripping your housekeeper and killing her versus her tripping on your stairs and dying. I wonder what the difference is there and if that was very strategic. I don't know if it had an impact on the insurance policy, no. but we will be talking about an insurance policy. Perfect. We'll get there. Perfect. We'll get there. Naturally, that's where my mind had to go. Yeah. Glo- there's there's lots of insurance involved in this one. <laughs> Wonderful. So much insurance. I feel right at home. <laughs> Gloria's death did nothing to improve Paul's drinking or behavior. Ugh. Paul continued to drink and party with his friends, including a group of five other teenagers who were all connected in one way or another. So Paul grew up with a guy named Anthony Cook. Anthony said Paul was wilder than most, but he was a good friend and had a great heart. But Anthony's parents told him to be careful around Paul. They warned him that if he wanted to go out and party with him, that's fine. But if they ever got in trouble, Paul would never suffer the consequences, but Anthony would. Yeah. Anthony's cousin Connor received the same warning from his parents. Uh Anthony Cook was in a relationship with Mallory Beach. Mallory and Anthony had known each other and been friends since they were little kids. But as they got older, Anthony realized that he had feelings for Mallory. They made things official on New Year's Eve 2019. Hmm. He said he had already loved her for years and said when he asked her to be his girlfriend, he knew that they were going to get married someday. Oh, that's so sweet. So sweet. Mallory was best friends with Morgan Dowdy, who was dating Paul, and also with Miley Altman, who was dating Anthony's cousin, Connor Cook. Mallory and Miley had been friends since pre K. Mallory walked up to Miley and said, you're pretty. And that was it. They <laughs> were best friends since. Cute. Which is funny because that's how, basically how I made my friends. <laughs> um, Colby and I were placed together in college orientation and I was like, hi, you're my best friend now. Uh-huh. And I did the same thing to my best friend, Kate, from law school. I yeah. sat down next to her and I was like, you're the first person I saw. We're best friends now. Okay, thanks. How did we become friends? Through Colby. Did you adopt me? I must I think have. you did. Yeah. yeah. And you met remember. Colby through the sorority. Yes, that I remember. And then we worked in the learning center together. Oh, And then we'll be as friends. <laughs> so much singing. I just got, I got a song in my heart. A song in my heart. Is there a song about that? I got a song in my heart. No. <laughs> there is now. <laughs> yeah. Miley and Mallory met Morgan later in life. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> the girls were out and they saw Morgan complimented her shoes. And that was all it took too. <laughs> When girls connect, they connect, period. Mm -hmm. Mallory got along with Paul okay, but Miley hated him. Mm. Morgan, Miley, and Mallory all worked together at a store called Retail Therapy, so the girls would often see the aftermath of Paul's emotional abuse of Morgan. Mm. Morgan would get to work, and she'd be crying, and the girls would tell her to leave Paul. Mallory would send Morgan uplifting messages to remind her that she was an incredible person, just being supportive of Morgan in whatever way she needed. That's so sweet. Mallory could really light up a room and cheer no, no, up. No, no, no. I'm pretending that I didn't recognize the name from the intro, and I'm just listening to this nice story about these girls and their niceness. She's so light. nice. She lit up a room. No, no, no. On February 23rd, 2019, there was a local oyster roast going on that evening, and the three couples planned to go. Anthony hadn't wanted to go, but Mallory really wanted to, and successfully changed his mind with some puppy dog (laughs) face-level begging. Connor and Miley were going as well, and Paul guilt-tripped Morgan into going by telling her all of her friends would be there. (laughs) Around 6.30, the group met at Paul's grandfather's fishing cabin on the Chichesse River, The group made a stop at Parker's Kitchen in Ridgefield, South Carolina, where 19-year-old Paul bought beer, hard seltzer, cigarettes, and gum on his mother's credit card using his 22-year-old brother's photo ID. Perfect. Hoisting his illicit purchases triumphantly overhead once out of the store, Paul returned to his group of friends, and they headed to Paul's boat ready to party at the oyster roast, which started at 8. The cooler was stocked with alcohol bought by Paul and Miley at Parker's and whatever alcohol Mallory and Anthony had brought with them. Mm. Paul drove and parked his boat at one of the docks near the cookout. He started the night by immediately funneling six Natty Ices. So casual. Perfect. And then to captain a boat. That's that's really perfect. Yes. Okay. Yes. Definitely recommended. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nothing bad can happen. No. The group of teens continued to drink for about four hours, grabbing beers and seltzers from the cooler they left on the boat. Around 12, the group was preparing to leave. Several people had offered to drive them home and counseled against driving the boat home. It was cold, for South Carolina, and it was a dark winter night and they'd all been drinking. But Paul would have none of it. It was obviously a terrible idea, but they all got back on the boat anyways. The boat didn't have running lights, so the teens had to take turns holding a flashlight up in the darkness. This is one of those moments where we're just going to stop and talk about how teens brains are not fully developed yeah. and they don't adequately consider the possible consequences of their actions. Yep. And what makes that worse is early drinking. Yeah. It makes your brain bad. My brain did <laughs> not comprehend so what you said. I heard our lesion <laughs> drinking and I was like, what? <laughs> My lesion. <liege. laughs> yes. It's, it's bad, bad. And speaking of underdeveloped brains, um, Paul decided that he wasn't ready to go home just yet when they left no. at 1255, Paul parked the boat at the dock in downtown Beaufort and him and Connor went to Luther's bar where they each took two more shots. Oof. The others didn't want to go to the bar, but there was no talking Paul out of it, which is incredibly obnoxious to basically hold your friends hostage. Yeah. But I don't hold my friends hostage personally, but I do Always think that karaoke is a good idea by the end of the night, whether I'm drunk or sober. That's a, that's a grim fact about me. Mallory and Anthony stayed outside on the dock and hung out while Paul continued to drink. They were still in the honeymoon phase of their relationship, so they were happy for the time alone. By the time Paul left Luther's bar and they were ready to leave, Paul was Timmy. I'm sure Paul was Timmy well before this mm-hmm. moment, but there's video proof at this point. <gasps> Paul had flipped a chair on his way out what? and video surveillance of Paul on the dock shows him raising his arms and spreading his hands in that weird <laughs> drunk way that Paul slash Timmy does. I'm really going to need to watch that video after. It's just like a weird like finger spreading th- it's do, just... do you know what it makes me think of? Because I- I'm sad Colby's not on to get my stepbrother's reference but when um, when Mr. Doback goes into the dinosaur he's talking at the end when the, that they're at the Catalina fucking wine mixer <laughs> and <laughs> he's talking about how he just wanted to be a dinosaur and he's doing the, yes, the arms. just like, like a that's weird I'm yeah, Just like weird <laughs> hand arm movements. I don't know. I just I think of the wacky waving inflatable yes. arms tube, man. Yeah. But yeah. So the group knew Paul was in no shape mm. to drive and elected either to have Anthony or Connor mm. drive or just get an Uber. Mm-hmm. Paul was pissed and said he refused to leave his boat there and he was driving, period. No one else was gonna drive his boat. At that point, any of the teens could have continued to refuse to get on the boat, knowing Paul was incapacitated, but they all got on the boat. (sighs) It's just such a teenage, as you said, it's such a teenage decision. Right. Like, you're not thinking it through. You think you're invincible. Nothing bad has ever happened before. Like, why why would anything bad happen now? Like, just... Yep. It's a very teenage decision. Once on the boat, their concerns were validated by Paul's continued erratic behavior. Anthony said when Paul gets extremely intoxicated, he doesn't like to wear any clothes. So he had stripped down to his boxers by that point. Wow. I feel like he's Will Ferrell and old school. We're we're going streaking. (laughs) Everybody's going streaking and there's no one behind him. Yeah. Anthony offered again to drive and the other teens continued to say that someone else should be driving the boat and Paul would snap back. This is my fucking boat and I know this river. You aren't driving my boat. Paul was zigzagging all over the river, going in circles, and kept just walking away from the steering wheel. Oh my God. Connor would grab the wheel when Paul walked away, making sure the boat stayed upright. Yikes. There was just yelling and anxious energy on the boat. Paul started yelling at Morgan, asking why she didn't have his back. Morgan told Paul that he was acting crazy, and he said, you know what's crazy? Your dad not making enough money to support your family. What a dick that hurts my soul for Morgan and yeah. fuck Paul. Yeah. Like what an entitled little rich kid dick to it, say that. It Everything about him screams that because he's never had consequences. He's like, even the flipping the chair, like really bothered me for some reason, just because it just shows complete disrespect for where he is and what he's doing. And just assumption that he will have no consequences. That's just what that screams to me. And a lack of respect for it, others. That's property. what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Morgan was already crying at that point, and then Paul called her a whore, spit on her, and slapped her in front of all of their friends. Tensions continued to rise, everyone fearing for their safety, while also telling Paul his behavior was not okay. Connor was starting to get really scared and told Miley he loved her. Oh! Paul pointed at Mallory like he was going to start yelling at her, and Anthony warned him against it. All of a sudden, Paul slammed down the throttle on the boat, and Anthony was thrown down. (gasps) He grabbed Mallory and pulled her into his lap because he felt like that was the safest place for her. He put his foot up to brace himself and pulled Mallory towards him. The boat slammed into the the bridge on Archer's Creek and Mallory and Anthony were ejected into the dark waters below. (gasps) Paul was crawling onto the shore and Anthony grabbed him and slammed him against the dirt. He said, are you happy now? Then Anthony assessed his surroundings and realized he didn't see Mallory. Oh no. Miley ran out of the water asking where Mallory was. Morgan was still in the boat screaming as her hand had been caught between the boat and the bridge. (gasps) Oh my God. Connor had hit his jaw and was bleeding from a deep gash on his face. Anthony dove back into the water frantically searching for Mallory, but the current was strong. Mm. He stayed in the water as long as he could looking for her. Connor called 911 and he just sounded so dazed. Morgan was screaming. It hurts. It fucking hurts. Yeah. Yeah. When the police showed up, the first thing Morgan said was, please tell me you found Mallory. Oh. Anthony and Paul ended up on the top of the bridge with the officers. Anthony was extremely upset and agitated given the situation and the fact that Mallory was missing. Paul's only concern was to call his grandfather and of kept course. saying that everything was going to be okay. Oh. oh, I'm so angry at him. That pissed Anthony off even more. Anthony was screaming at Paul that Mallory was missing and Paul was smiling. In dash cam footage, you can hear Anthony screaming at Paul. You're fucking smiling like it's fucking funny. My fucking girlfriend is gone. Hope you rot in fucking hell. Good for him. He said he saw red. I i am shocked that he, I'm sure there were a bunch of police, so he couldn't, but I'm shocked that he didn't attack him. I think he wanted to be the shit out of him. Absolutely. But I think he was also injured and dazed and confused. Of course. And there were a lot of police officers. And not in the fun way. No, no, no. The lead investigator on the case was Michael Brock. He spoke to Anthony Cook about the incident when Anthony was sitting near the officer's dash can. Anthony specifically told the officer that Paul Murdoch killed my girlfriend. Shockingly, that audio recording was never preserved. Oh, mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm. I think it was quite clear to the police that Paul was intoxicated, but Paul told officers that he wasn't the one driving the boat. Of course he said that. He told them that Cotton Top, a.k.a. Connor, was the one that had been driving. Officers never administered sobriety tests or a breathalyzer to anyone on the scene or afterwards. I'm shocked that it was not to anyone. Right. I'm not shocked that they didn't test Paul, Paul. but I, I can already feel that I'm going, I mean, obviously with the setup of, of the influence and the family and everything, I knew it was coming, but I'm going to be so angry through this whole case. You are, you really are. I'm (laughs) pre-mad. That's, that's my go-to. I know. Just just get it out now. Get it out now. There were Paris Island Police, Beaufort County Police, and Department of Natural Resource officers involved, and no one was going to point the finger at Paul Murdoch. I was thinking that too. Like even even if the cops did everything, it, like Anthony and the other kids are going to have a hard time standing against uh, Paul and the family because. They probably will ruin their lives. So if if he later says, you know, I'm, I know he was driving. I know he had taken all these shots and done all this stuff and he was acting blah, blah, blah. Like maybe they're going to prevent him from ever having a job or something. Yeah. They could ruin your life. Right. They have that influence. God, what a nightmare. It is a nightmare. Anthony had called his parents and they came out to the bridge. His mom realized that Mallory's parents weren't there and she didn't want to make that call. Mm. No one wanted to make that call. Mallory's parents weren't called until 4 a.m. They were told there was a boating accident and that they couldn't find Mallory. Mallory's (laughs) parents went to Archer's Creek and Anthony was still there. Paul, Connor, Morgan, and Miley had gone to the hospital by that point. Anthony's shoulder was injured, but he refused to leave until they found Mallory. Mm. The police brought search and rescue out right away. By 5.30 a.m., they had a dive team in the water, but the current was very strong. They wanted to bring in a helicopter, but they couldn't because it was too foggy. So they were just doing the best that they could. Connor called his father from the ambulance to let him know he was being taken to the hospital. Prior to arriving at the hospital, Marty Cook received a call from Alec, who told them that Connor was the one driving the boat, and don't worry, we're going to take care of Connor. Mm. We've got it. Uh Uh-uh. At the hospital, the teens were treated for their injuries. Morgan's hand had been crushed in between the boat and the bridge. The skin of her hand was peeled back from her (gasps) fingers and she needed sutures to put it back in place. (laughs) Connor had the large gash to his face and had also fractured his jaw. Miley thankfully did not suffer any serious injuries and neither did Paul that I'm aware of probably because he was absolutely shit faced. Yeah. Yeah. He was over the top drunk at the hospital. And of course Randolph and Alec showed up to the hospital ASAP and Alec went to work. Although not acting in an official capacity, Alec had his solicitor badge hanging from his pocket on display. I can't. can't. As if they didn't know who he was anyway. Right. Like, that was definitely just a reminder. Right. Alec kept Paul from being interviewed that night by the Department of Natural Resources officer Austin Pritcher, who was there to interview the teens. Alec intercepted the cooks when they got to the hospital and told them again that Connor was the one driving the boat and that they would take care of him. He said, with all the judges and law enforcement they know, don't even worry about this. And while Connor was being wheeled away for an x-ray, Alec caught him and he leaned over and whispered in his ear, just be quiet, shut your mouth, don't worry, we're going to take care of you. Unreal piece of shit. I'm so mad. It makes me really mad. (laughs) I'm just also, any of these cases where... People are just completely powerless is so upsetting to me because I think like I so firmly believe in authority and organization and and hierarchy and all of that. And it just falls apart when you can't trust anyone and you're just stuck between a rock and a hard place or a boat and a bridge, as yeah. it were. I know. And so right now I'm rewatching Handmaid's Tale. And that's what I, I don't know if you've seen that, but Mm -hmm. like when Serena is trying to get some rights back and she gets punished the same, like by rules that she implement, like just completely powerless. Exactly, Not the exact same situation. They are not in Gilead. But anyways, (laughs) we digress. (laughs) Um, Connor told his father that he was not the one driving the boat. But with Alec controlling the narrative, the Department of Natural Resource officers were all over him. Marty knew that he should get his son a lawyer, but Alec was the only lawyer he knew. He asked Alec for a recommendation, and Alec recommended Corey Fleming, who was Alec's college roommate and Mm -hmm. Paul's godfather. (laughs) I'm so, I'm like moving away from the mic because I'm trying not to breathe into it because (laughs) I'm so mad. (laughs) Morgan was in another room being treated. Randolph and Alec went into her room, and Alec told the nursing staff that he needed to speak to Morgan. He said that he was her acting guardian and also represented her as an attorney. Morgan was able to tell the nurse that she didn't want to talk to him and to keep him the fuck away from her, basically because wow. I was going to say, I like you'd you would hope that the other kids would be able to say it wasn't him driving, right, but they they can't. Or they can, and it'll be dismissed. But he's just going around, room to room, Mm. in this chaos, just creating confusion. He's just kicking up dust. Manipulating. He is. He is manipulating the situation. Wow. Randolph then went to speak to Miley's mom. Miley's mom asked Randolph if they had found Mallory yet. He said, who? (gasps) Gross gross. I mean, I am so mad. <laughs> I don't know if I can listen to the rest of this case. I get being concerned about the poor decisions of your grandson, but how about um just an ounce, a speck of an humanity? iota Yeah, of respect uh-huh. for a teenager who's missing off of your family's boat. And you know it was your son driving. Grandson. You know. This grandson. is right now. sorry. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Or mm. is involved somehow. Right. Like you just mm. Since so much of all these cases focus on the Murdochs and since I've um, fully pissed Laura off, um, and since it's clear that the Murdochs gave zero shits about Mallory, let's just take a moment to talk about her. Good. Mallory Madison Beach was born on April 18th, 1999 in Walterboro, South Carolina to Philip Harley and Renee Searson Beach. She was the youngest of three girls. As a child, Mallory was in pageants. She loved animals and wanted to be a veterinarian when she grew up. But her dad said she also loved a challenge. Her father said that Mallory told him once that she wanted to hunt a deer with a bow because it's too easy to do with a gun. My goodness. She played softball, soccer, and enjoyed spending time with her friends. She graduated from Wade Hampton High School and was attending the University of South Carolina in Columbia, (laughs) pursuing a career in interior design. She worked at a clothing store in Beaufort called It's Retail Therapy with Miley and Morgan, and she was a natural at cheering people up. Her parents said that she was never taught how to hate. Oh my gosh. And her poor parents, missing the Alec drama at the hospital, stood on the causeway waiting for Mallory to be found. On Monday or Tuesday, Mallory's mother Renee wanted to go down to the bottom of the bridge and see the area near the boat wreck, but the officers wouldn't let her near it. The whole area was cordoned off and both Renee Beach and Anthony Cook were told that officers had strict instructions not to let anyone down near the accident since it could be a crime scene. I mean, fair. If you were going to do anything appropriate with the evidence. Correct. Soon thereafter, Mallory's mother saw Randolph and Maggie led down to the scene of the boat accident. <gasps> you know, because the rules don't apply to them. <sighs> oh, I'm still mad. The Murdochs ruled the Low Country. There was obviously no concern that the Murdochs were having close interaction with the possible crime scene, Uh even though Paul Murdoch had been on the boat that night. Uh In fact, the person that towed the boat away from the scene of the crime was John Marvin Murdoch, Alex's brother. John's best friend happened to be a Department of Natural Resources officer, Michael Paul Thomas, who was one of the officers assigned to the investigation. So you know how we were talking about? So you were talking about the handma- Handmaid's Tale, and I said you should watch Black Mirror. This is this is like a Black Mirror episode. Is it? it oh, in, I don't like in it. That, no, I because like it's that. just you're just like it can't possibly be. It can't be, and it it is. It could be. <laughs> it, it is. is. <laughs> it was. It is. It was. On the night of the boat crash and the days following, John Marvin, who was Alex's brother, made numerous calls to his officer bestie, Michael Paul Thomas. Michael Paul Thomas made calls to Austin Pritcher, the Department of Natural Resources officer who had been to the hospital that night to interview the teens involved in the crash. So maybe you're going to tell me this when we get further into trial and all of that, but isn't there, like, I get that it's protecting their little compound and people are all protecting one another and it's all this tight knit and nobody's like the people that you could raise flags to are are involved so you can't raise any flags but at some point doesn't it get broader than that wouldn't somebody look at this and say you can't do that is that what's going to happen are you going to tell me that in the trial but they're the highest they no, have they people in be. the highest places they, can't be. they know all the judges they no. know all the prosecutors they just know they know all the officers that's just how it was. Oh, that's, I just, that's what I mean. Like it breaks my brain that there's, that they're, they're all powerless. They are. Well, let me rephrase that. <laughs> all the Murdochs are not powerless. No. But the, all the people who are seeking justice are. Yes. They yeah. are the wizards of Oz. Yes. That's why they called it Murdoch country. Wow. Yeah. Ugh. And on the night of the boat crash and the days after, there were constant calls between the investigators and the Murdochs, but not a single call to Philip or Renee Beach, whose daughter was missing. Unreal. As the days passed and Mallory had yet to be found, Alec continued his campaign against Connor to protect his son. All of the advice being given to Connor, the police misdirection, and the possible obstruction of the investigation was for Paul's benefit. Alec called Marty cook again and told him that they had to talk and for him to meet Alec at his law firm, even though the cooks had a lawyer. Now Alec wanted to make sure that Marty wasn't going to say anything about the boating incident. The family was scared of the position in which they Mm -hmm. found themselves enough so that Connor asked his father if the Murdochs were going to try to kill him to cover the whole thing up. Oh my God. Can you imagine asking that in real life? Like really being worried about that? It is a movie. That's yes. It's a Home. movie. Oh my God. As soon as I started this, I was like, it's definitely two parts. Like there's too much. Yeah. By the way, guys, this is two parts. Sorry. I actually forgot that. <laughs> Cause I was like, I, <laughs> I really was actually going to pause and ask you like, do you want to make this two parts? Cause like we're, we're plugging along and I feel like there's a lot. To talk about, but... It is very much two parts. Wow. hmm Yeah. I agree. Yes. But I'm also mad. I'm so sorry. <laughs> You're going to be even more mad. I'm but... already... I'm pre mad about everything. <laughs> Connor wasn't the only one who feared a cover-up. In addition to search and rescue, the Murdochs had boats on the water looking for Mallory. Beverly Cook said that one day she was in her truck crying near the causeway, basically taking a moment mm-hmm. on her own to have a breakdown. Maggie opened the door and got in the back seat and asked her... What do you think will happen if they never find her? That absolutely devastated Beverly, but Beverly didn't take it as a heartbreaking inquiry, no. but more yeah. of a sinister consideration. Uh-huh. That's how I take it. The cooks absolutely believe that the Murdochs were capable of a full cover up. Wow. Ooh, that's so that's enough to give me chills. I think so. You think so, or you have chills? <laughs> no, I know I have chills, but I'm. I think that oh, they think are capable of that. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what they're doing right oof, now. Oof. Anthony rarely left the water's edge after the accident, but as the days dragged on, it was becoming clear that Mallory would not be found alive. Mm. About a week after the crash, on March 3rd, 2019, two volunteers found Mallory Mallory's body in a marsh area near mm. the Broad River boat landing in Beaufort County, about five miles from where the wow. boat crashed. Oh. Mallory had suffered blunt force trauma and drowned. Hopefully very quickly is the I, only thing I can hope for her. I'm hoping that she was thrown from the boat, yep. knocked unconscious by the bridge yep. and then drowned like almost that completely unknowingly. Also what I hope that's best case scenario yeah. oh my God, for though. her in this situation. I wish she didn't die at all, of course, but I'm just saying, of course. that's if it went that way, Beverly cook said she had never seen a bigger funeral than Mallory's. Oh. Thankfully, Despite Alex's best efforts to confuse the situation, the police were on to Paul. Wow. On April 18th, 2019, a grand jury indicted Paul on one count of boating under the influence and two counts of boating under the influence causing bodily injury. All three counts were felonies and Paul faced a maximum of 55 years in prison. The cook said it was a big deal and a surprise that Paul was even charged at all. Absolutely. I the face I'm making is just that it wasn't. I wonder is there a charge for boating causing a, like a death versus just an injury or is that as bad as it can get? It's already a felony so that may just be as bad as it gets. Got it. Causing bodily harm, yeah. maybe bodily harm including death depending oh, on sure. the definition in the statute. I didn't pull the South Carolina statutes I'm under disappointed. which he was charged. I'm so sorry. You research law like I research history. <laughs> yeah. You're like the light bulb was invented. In- <laughs> <laughs> Your sound's way cooler. <laughs> <laughs> On May 6, 2019, Paul was arraigned in court. There were a half dozen reporters present and Alec and Maggie-, Maggie were given special treatment throughout the whole ordeal. Paul's mugshot was taken that day. He pleaded not guilty and waived his pretrial hearing. Now, some of these things they talk about, you know, the favor they're getting in court. I can't even hold that against them. Alex, a lawyer with personal and family connections in the state's attorney's office, even if he wasn't getting special treatment per se, it's going to look like he is because he's in his comfort zone. He's there. He knows people. He knows what to expect and how to navigate the procedures and everything. As Mallory's parents, I can't imagine being onlookers to this because no. you can't feel like You'd you're going to be getting justice. You would be sick. Yeah. But I I can't hold that against him. Yeah. Same thing with the badge. I mean, like, it's yeah. gross, but yeah. like, you know, people would do it. Of like, course. You know, people yeah. would do it. Yep. Again, gross. But as an aside, Paul wasn't the only one dragging the Murdoch name through the mud at this point. In the spring of 2019, Buster Murdoch was kicked out of the University of South Carolina School of Law for Plagiarism. <laughs> also a piece of shit. I have to say, when you first told me about the stories, I was surprised that, that Paul is the focus of our, of our discussion right now, because, um, that's, I thought it was going to be Buster. No. Wow. Buster. We'll talk about Buster next episode a little bit. This is what it's like so good and so bad that I, I try very hard not to read anything or look at anything. Like I'm trying not to think about what names I've seen, In our Discord and everything, because you guys have been talking about it, and I'm trying not to. You're on this roller coaster ride. I am. It's a long one. (laughs) It is. In addition to the criminal case, because the situation was obviously sketchy from the start and because they lost their daughter, the Beach family hired an attorney, Mark Tinsley, to help them navigate the aftermath of their daughter's death and to help show the Murdochs that they were not above the law. In March 2019, about a month after Mallory's funeral, the Beach family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Alec Murdoch, Buster Murdoch, and Parker's Convenience Store. And I think I learned in a previous case, but I want to confirm. So they they had the ongoing indictment, which was a criminal case from the state against Paul, but then separately in a civil matter, then the Beach family can sue uh, the Murdochs, is Correct. that right? Okay. Like Look what? happened like, a lawyer. <laughs> like what happened with OJ Simpson, where he was yes, found not yes. crimin- criminally liable, but right. he was he had to pay in civil court. Yep. Okay. Yes. Thank you. And now Parker's convenience store was where Paul bought the alcohol mm-hmm. for the oyster roast that night. Mark said he wanted to file the suit early so that he could be involved in the investigation on the family's behalf and so that they would have subpoena power. Mark Tinsley began reconstructing the events of that evening so that he could prove that Paul was driving the boat. Mm-hmm. He hired a biomechanical engineer who reviewed the passengers in their positions in the boat and their respective injuries to I love it, re- to recreate the accident. Is that, that great? That is my favorite analysis done with court that and like blood spatter patterns the and forensic all that. evidence? Yes. It's so, because it's so, it's so clear and it, tells the truth and it's so fascinating so and there's an expert for everything yeah Yeah. they're like this is the expert for carpet hair analysis and (laughs) sneakers (laughs) sneaker shoelaces yes so connor had lacerations to his face and the fractured jaw Mm -hmm. and the biomechanical engineer determined that without a doubt based upon the recreation connor could not have suffered the injuries he did had he been driving the boat yup Basically, because of what he hit his face on that caused the fracture. Good. Within two weeks of the accident, Alex's partner, one of his law partners, Mm -hmm. Danny Henderson, who was acting as his personal lawyer, brought Mark Tinsley copies of Alex's insurance policies. There was a $500,000 progressive policy that was offered almost immediately to all of the victims. The other policies all either had broad watercraft exclusions or they were commercial policies in which the incident had to occur during commercial Mm -hmm. business. Mark Tinsley figured out quickly that the Murdochs were underinsured for this boating accident, and Mark made it clear that he was going to go after Alec for a personal recovery that he would have to pay himself. So brilliant to actually, you know, uh, yeah, that's just brilliant. Brilliant. I thought I was going to say to have the insurance companies go after him, but it's kind of the opposite. You're not protected by insurance. No, and he's also going after the insurance policies. Right. Which they offered, but yeah, he didn't want just that. He wants more. Mark's ultimate claim against Alec was based on negligent entrustment. Uh-huh. He said that Alec knew that Paul had a propensity to consume alcohol and was underage. And he also knew the hazards presented from Paul's consumption of alcohol, but still entrusted him with the boat. Oh, I wasn't even thinking about that for like because I was busy thinking about things on the court side of things. But in insurance, you have to have like, it's that policy is under, uh, oh my God, there's so many R names. Well, not for the civil claim. He's suing him civilly. It has nothing to do oh. with the insurance. Oh. I'm, so he oh. was covered by the insurance and progressive offered that policy. I see. But Mark is going after him personally. Oh, I was interesting that he's doing hi, He's going after him and they're suing Paul. Right. So everybody's getting sued. He's not suing Paul. At all. No, yeah. not in this lawsuit. He oh. didn't go after Paul. Paul oh. is getting Paul is getting um, the just the criminal case. criminal suit. Yes. Oh, I misunderstood. Well, I thought that was yeah. Paul is essentially what you would call judgment proof because yeah. he yeah. is just a spoiled little rich kid who doesn't have a job or yeah. really a dollar to his name. But fascinating because that I would think creates way more. It, it must be such a different way to argue to have to prove that it's his father that was negligent. You know what I mean? Versus proving a person did something oh right because you you, he can prove that paul was driving and was reckless and wrecked the boat but again that's not where the money is he's going after the deep pockets complicated i know Hmm. that's what lawyers do man yes why i'm not a lawyer they find they find the deep pockets (laughs) that's actually brilliant it's so much more complicated than i would think right well you can win cases against a bunch of people but if they don't have a dollar to their name or a pot to piss in it's not worth it true you know It's yep. like, here, here's $100,000. They can't pay any of it. Yep. Like, congratulations. Huh. And wow. then you're out all those legal fees. And plus he's got the criminal case is against Paul. So at least you're right. getting, so hopefully, some we'll justice. See. So, yeah, exactly. You'll get justice from that side and then the money compensation side. And I think from huh. Mark Tinsley's perspective, I think to make the Murdoch pa- family pay in general yeah. was justice. Yes. Because absolutely. it didn't have to come from Paul as long as it... Hurt the family. Who arguably are the cause of all of it, truthfully, because Paul is the way he is because of the family. Yes. And then the cover up is the way that it is because of the family. And the beaches and Mark Tinsley did not want this to happen to another family. Yes. Oh, God, that's a good point. Yep. Alec wasn't ready to go down without a fight. Mark Tinsley and Alec Murdoch were at the same fundraiser one night. They were in a room full of lawyers, and Alec went up to Mark and got in his face to say, What's this I'm hearing about what you're saying? I thought we were friends. (laughs) Go away. Mark was not intimidated and he said, we are friends, but if you think I won't burn your house down, I'm going to do everything that I can and you need to just settle this case. Oh, hell yes, Mark. Yeah. 90% of cases settle and Mark felt that this was clearly a case that should settle. Right. He was just waiting for an offer. Right. Parker's convenience store wasn't sitting idly by either. The owner, Greg Parker, was furious that he could be held liable for millions of dollars when he felt he hadn't done anything wrong. Okay. I, I, I'll listen. Okay. Okay. <laughs> South Carolina law enforcement had investigated their convenience store following the crash, and they weren't issued any citations for the sale of the alcohol. The woman, they did everything that they were supposed to do. Paul had the fake ID. Oh, right. But it was his brother, so they obviously looked alike. I forgot. They scanned the ID. It was a valid ID. Okay. And she sold it. Like, how would you know? Okay. All right. Yeah. I forgot. I forgot that he had that ID. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Fair. So he hired a private investigator to try to get video of Paul drinking because he said that Paul just carried on with his life after the accident. And Greg felt strongly that Paul should be held responsible. Yes. Yeah. Mark Tinsley also obviously wanted the Murdochs held responsible, but his sights were set on Alec. Mm. He wanted financial information in order to determine an appropriate amount of compensation for his clients. But in October 2020, Alec told Mark he was broke. He <laughs> said AKA, all of my money has been moved offshore. It's so <laughs> <is> hidden. <laughs> yeah. He said he could probably cobble together about a million dollars, and Mark thought, no way. He thought that if Alec is broke, it's because he's hiding the money, uh-huh. just as you suspected. Yep. <laughs> Alec continued to be in court, working and settling cases at this high-powered family firm. He was obviously collecting a paycheck, and everyone knew there was generational wealth as well. Absolutely, and he had yeah, absolutely. His money was earning money for right. sure. Right. Yeah. But the Murdoch family had money. Period. Uh huh. Mark didn't believe him. But he offered to be flexible still. He was reasonable. He told Alec he would agree to a payment plan, or he said he could sign over the Mazelle property or their beach house. And basically, he said to him, listen, if you're broke, prove it. Mm -hmm. Show me. Mm -hmm. Show me you're broke. Of course. And then he was like, and then I'll trace where you're hiding all the money because I won't believe still that you're (laughs) broke. I love Mark. (laughs) But Alec wouldn't agree. So Mark filed a motion to compel to get the information concerning Alec's finances. The beaches were demanding accountability, and Mark said he really wanted the disclosures now because Alec didn't want to give it to Uh him. I would feel exactly the same way. He's like, that makes me want it even more. Uh Yeah. Mark also filed a motion to compel information concerning the alcohol sales by the convenience store. These motions were slated to be heard by the civil court on May 10th, 2021, in addition to a motion by the Parker's convenience store to change the venue of the civil lawsuit. Oh, Mark wanted to leave the case in Hampton County where it was currently pending, but he said if he got any indication that the Murdochs were trying to fix the jury, he would move it. I was wondering, I was actually wondering if, so if they go to court in the civil court that has the judges and the lawyers and everybody that the Murdochs know, right? In that whole circuit. in Is that right? I mean, they know all the attorneys right. and the, in the judge. Yes. They know everybody there. But. So if they could, if someone could see like, how could you ever prove that a judge was being influenced or biased by a family like that? Cause it's obviously that does it, that is not the point of a judge. They're supposed to be unbiased, but how could you like, can you bring that to any superior somebody or other? And like, how would you even begin to prove that it's not, that it is via influence? It would be very hard to prove, and it sort of depends on what's happening. Because Mm -hmm. um, in both civil and criminal court, if you appeal something... If you're trying to appeal a finding of fact and it was a jury, you're going to lose because the jury is the ultimate finder of fact. As long as the conclusion that they reached could reasonably be concluded from the evidence, it stands. If you're looking at the judge's legal conclusion, as long as it could legally be made, as long as it's a reasonable ruling. So I guess that's where you might be able to find the bias. If the ruling is so far fetched or so, you know illegal based right, on right, the the right. statute or the plain language huh. or whatever the case may be then that's where you might find it but i it's got to be hard because and again, it depends. There's standards of review on appeal depending on the type of, of issue it was. I guess the appeal is how you'd go about it. I'm, I'm like wondering whose manager I can call. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I have a complaint. But yes. in all seriousness, that, I guess that's how you would handle it, is You would appeal it to a higher court. Higher court, yeah, right? the appellate court. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I just, in your explanation learned the difference between what a judge rules in a case versus what a jury rules in a case because i i don't think i ever really thought about what that distinction is because when you hear a judge at least for me i'm thinking like they're deciding guilty or not but they are but in a legal sense and then the jury's doing it in a like arguing sense no No. help (laughs) (laughs) so this is marina's grim legal corner so like let's just talk through an example so you're going to have different findings in a case so would you prefer to talk about the civil case or the criminal case criminal to start criminal to start okay but then i want to learn civil and uh so we'll we'll let you know at the end of this how long this is if you all want to skip by but it's very interesting to me so in a criminal case if if you have a jury the jury is determining the outcome of the case They are the ones that decide whether the state has proven the elements of the law as the judge has instructed it. The jurors are the sole finders of fact. They are the ones that assess the credibility of the witnesses. They are the ones that decide what the facts are. As long as their findings are reasonable and rooted within the evidence presented, it does not get overturned. They, because, because judges say, you know, we're sitting here reading a cold record. The jurors had the benefit of sitting in the courtroom and reading their body language. And they don't like, they do not question the finders of fact, like very rarely. What would the judge's instruction be? What's an example of that? There are jury instructions. Like there is a 500 page packet for Connecticut. And, um, before, before jury instructions are given, the lawyers are given copies of the packets wow. to go through. You can request additional instructions. So they'll give you, you know, they'll give you the definition of reasonable doubt. They'll oh, give you okay. the what the charge is, what the elements are. They'll explain what circumstantial evidence is, everything that you that a jury would need to legally know. Wow. They define it for them. So should we recommend they just listen to the to Grimm instead? Yeah, instead <laughs> and then they'll get yeah. it after like fifty episodes. Yeah. Maybe the okay, perfect. And there's also okay, an that instruction that says don't listen to outside information. <laughs> right. You can only rely on what you wow. hear in the courtroom. Isn't that terrifying? In just uh, like I'm just picturing myself, which I think I'm a reasonably smart person, listening to all of that, trying to consume all of that new information and then having to listen through an entire trial that's probably very hard to, to pick up the root of what people are talking about and then have to make a judgment or a call on that is insane. So that's all in a criminal uh, case that 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 all happens. That's in a criminal case. Okay. The same thing could apply to a civil case. They're also instructed and, and then the, in the, um, Oh, and then, Oh, and then an example of a judge. So you can also, um, appeal, uh, rulings by the judge. So for example, if in the beginning of the case mm-hmm. you file, uh, an evidentiary motion, a motion to keep out a certain piece mm-hmm. of evidence and the judge says, no, it's coming in, you know, oh. you can argue that that was prejudicial and that it influenced the outcome. And then there's like different standards wow. of review on appeal that apply to that. So certain things, if you have like in criminal cases, if you have something that's co- like a constitutional violation, um, the review will be, it's called plenary. So the judges will disregard the prior rulings of the court and they will look at it basically with a fresh set of eyes huh. versus when you have evidentiary rulings, most of those are abuse of discretion standards. So they will, they err on the side of the judge unless there is, cl- it's clear that they abused their discretion sure. in making yeah. that decision. Wow. You have so much information in your brain. And I mean that in the greatest compliment. Thank you. Um, I would like to pick out more. My next question is, uh, by the way, this is this is actually just an interview, yes, <laughs> Laura interviewing yes. Marina. But so then the judge does the sentencing after, does the jury recommend sentencing or does it depend on case to case? The jury doesn't recommend sentencing. The only time the jury usually is involved in some piece of the sentencing is if you have, um, oh my gosh, what are they called? Like a sentence modifier. So there are sometimes where a um, a sentence can be greater if there is a certain finding, like if oh. they had a gun or if it's like a aggravated something like if there was in Eileen's wasn't or was it Eileen's? Yeah, like that it was aggravated and that's why they needed the death penalty. So that's what they were. That's what the, the sentencing hearing was. My glasses just fell off. Yes, <laughs> there, there is um, the death penalty is another one where the jury makes a finding. Got it. With regards to the death penalty, but in terms of sentencing, that's the judge's. Like the jury makes their finding, and then the judge will have a a sentencing hearing and sentence them. This would have been such useful information, like prior to episode what fifty-five or wherever we are, because I'm thinking back on all of the cases I've talked about, and I, I'm just, I, well, I'm not going to re-listen to them, but I. Bet you I could have been clearer about what has happened or what yeah. was happening. So well, that's why I remember Colby saying when she's like, "I don't like the court stuff," and <laughs> I'm like, "I love the court stuff. I love it. I just don't understand it." That's fair. So that's, that's how th- I feel when you and Colby talk to me about your jobs. <laughs> that's fair too. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so that was extremely helpful. Um, I forget why we why oh because I was worried about the bias of the judge. So it it could so it's actually that's interesting because <laughs> it almost the judge is almost not who I'm worried about in this it, it well that's oh, why they're worried about influencing the jury. that makes way more sense right I think I just always you know you always hear the judge is the one you know in charge right um so I guess I always thought of that but okay thank you that was, want, very, that was very unless it's helpful. a bench trial instead of a jury trial in which the judge becomes the jury oh and then the judge what becomes circum- the finder of fact you elect it you elect to have a bench trial oh. instead So of a jury wouldn't Paul want that in this case? Because he probably knows the judge. Although the judge probably isn't. He's probably a good person. He or she is probably a good person and not biased. So maybe it, they don't want that. It depends on the circumstances of the case. People will choose yeah. a bench trial if there are very complicated legal issues. Oh. Um, uh, law, legal laws. If there are very, <laughs> if like, if they're very comp, uh, complicated statutes that apply to the case, and they don't think that a jury will understand the differentiation, or sometimes if you have a defendant that is very unsympathetic, if you have like a sex oh. assault with a child or like something like that, like the, the jury would not be able to see past. Yes, yeah. you would yeah. want to pick a bench trial because wow. you'd be afraid that the jury was sympathetic. I think this has been my favorite segment of. All of our episodes of Grimm. I'm so glad. Um, I'm. I'll. I'll make a little disclaimer. I'm a little rusty on some of like the appellate okay. standards, but I think I okay. gave you pretty good information <laughs> overall. It's like it's like uh, the cliff notes of law school. It's what you would get on like Wikipedia, but explained, and I don't have to read it. Yeah, so digest. Digest with caution. Yes. is what yes. I'll say. Yeah, you said by a lawyer, yeah. naturally. <laughs> <laughs> That's allegedly the law. <laughs> It appears to be the law, but we'll see. We'll see. So back Back to to, the case. Back to it. (laughs) Hopefully this was helpful for other people too. And if not, not, I think it was like, well, like 10 minutes? Skip ahead. So sorry. (laughs) Mark wanted to leave the case in Hampton. But again, like he said, if he was sniffing out like a fix with the jury, he was going to bump it. One of Alex's attorneys needed the case continued and the motion hearings were rescheduled to June 10th, 2021. On June 7th, 2021, Alec went to his office to prepare a financial disclosure in preparation for the hearing in a few days. Mm-hmm. That night, he went home and found Maggie and Paul shot to death on their property in Moselle. I did know that, but holy shit, I forgot in all of the focus on everything else. Oh my God, I completely forgot that there were other murders and we're going to talk all about that oh, no. next week. No. The fact that I just made everyone sit through 10 minutes of law school just to get to two more <laughs> sentences. <laughs> i didn't want to interrupt your questions you were so invested so interested i'm so sorry everyone. well see that's okay though because if everybody just skipped ahead they were like oh it's over anyways it's fine <laughs> the juicy stuff comes next week no they're going they're hitting the 30 seconds 30 seconds fast forward going how long can they possibly talk about this abuse of oh discretion God. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Wow! Damn! Okay. So sorry. And we're not even recording part two tonight, so Laura has to wait too. I feel your pain, Gremlins. Mm -hmm. If you're enjoying listening to (laughs) Grim, please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, make our day by leaving us a written review. You can find our page on Facebook by searching Grim: A True Crime Podcast. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, you can go to Patreon and search Grim: A True Crime Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, or you have a question for Marina's Grim Legal Corner, (laughs) you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive until next time, because the future is grim.